Daniel chapter 6, and we're going to start reading from uh, Daniel chapter 5, verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three chief ministers over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the chief ministers and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct uh, of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these chief ministers and satraps went as a group to the king and said, making Darius live forever, the royal ministers Prefects, satraps, advisers, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sunset to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating 
and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Over the last few days... If you've been following the news, we have been learning a lot about citizenship and residency and how those concepts have implications, big implications for our lives, particularly where we pay taxes. So you've been watching uh, Chancellor Rishi Sunak and his wife, Akshata Muti, um, has been in the headlines because their residential status and their citizenship uh, have been affecting where they pay their taxes. And we know that there are connections between where you belong and how you live your life. Now, as Christians, God's word teaches us that we are dual citizens. I have one son who is a dual citizen, and he holds passports and citizenships of two kingdoms. And as Christians, every Christian is a dual citizen. We are members of different kingdoms of this world, but we are all united in being citizens of the one kingdom of the living God. And there are times in our lives when our citizenship of those two different kingdoms collide. Times when they conflict. And in those moments, we have to decide where our ultimate loyalty lies. There will be a moment in a number of years where my son, who is a dual citizen, will probably have to decide which kingdom he wants to be a part of because there will be tax implications if he tries to remain a part of both. And that is what this chapter is really all about. Where do our ultimate loyalties lie as citizens of two kingdoms, kingdom of this world and the great kingdom of God? And how is that going to shape our lives on a day-to-day basis? Because in this chapter, Daniel faces a situation where the kingdom of Darius and the kingdom of God conflict. 
And Daniel will act in this chapter in a way that will clearly identify himself as a kingdom, as a member, a citizen of God's kingdom, and therefore a servant of the one true and living God. And in doing so, he will show us what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. So as we look together at this chapter, we're going to see four characteristics, four markers of who we should be as Christians, as members, as citizens of God's kingdom. And the first is this. We see citizens of God's kingdom serve with excellence in their callings, verses 1 to 5. I ask that Sam would uh, begin the reading in verse 30 because it tells us the background to how we have a new king, another new king in the book of Daniel as we come to chapter 6 because following the downfall of Belshazzar, Darius the Mede takes over as king and ruler of Babylon. And he seeks to establish his authority, as kings often do, by reorganizing his kingdom. He establishes 120 satraps, and we could think of them as regional governors, maybe as town mayors, perhaps. So they're responsible for smaller parts of the kingdom, and those 120 satraps are answerable to three chief ministers. And Daniel is one of those three chief ministers. And that's the arrangement that Darius starts with. But, but Daniel is so good at his job that the king begins to make plans to reorganize things again. And his new reorganization is going to put Daniel over all those other people. Not just the 120 satraps, but also the two other, uh, uh, the two other chief ministers. He's going to be above everyone. And one of the things that should strike us right at the start of this chapter is the way in which Daniel's outstanding character in his calling really shines through. He serves well and diligently as a servant of King Darius. We read in verse 3 that that is what distinguishes him. As Darius looks at all his servants, Daniel stands above them because of his distinguished service. The king notices his exceptional qualities. But of course, excellent character and excellent conduct are always recognized by many. And it's not just Darius who sees Daniel's character and conduct, it's also Daniel's opponents who do as well, the other rulers uh, there functioning for the king. And they don't want Daniel to be placed above them. So they start to look for ways in which they can undermine him. We don't know ultimately uh, why they want to undermine Daniel. It, It could be that they're jealous, it could be that they're trying to cover over corruption, but for whatever reason it is, Daniel becomes their target. When the President of the United States wants to appoint someone to a significant office in the United States, there is a formal confirmation process where senators and their staff will examine the candidate's life, their character, their beliefs, and their work. And those who go through this kind of Public examination, find it to be a very painful process because your life is under the spotlight. And here, Daniel goes through something like this, except he doesn't appear to know that it's happening. But when someone's enemies are examining their lives, we can know that their life is going to be put through even more careful examination. Why? Because, of course, they're motivated by a reason to try and pull you down. And so as we come to verse 4, 
it should strike us that after Daniel's opponents go through his life with a tooth comb, in verse 4 they have to admit there is no corruption in this man. And all that he does, he is trustworthy and he neglects nothing. Notice the balance of both parts of his life there. There is no ground to challenge him with clear wrongdoing through corruption and wrong action. But also, there is no negligence. He doesn't fail to do anything that he should do. And the first thing we're seeing as we look at Daniel's life here, his life shows us that being a citizen of God's kingdom should not stop you from excelling in your day-to-day work in human kingdoms. God's people should sow excellence in their service, in their callings in this world. But why do they do that? Well, they do it because of their ultimate commitment to the Lord that leads them to serve well in whatever God has called them to do. We do that because we are serving the Lord, we're obeying his command. That's what Daniel was doing in his life. Daniel was obeying the word of the Lord through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 and verse 7, where he had been told to seek the good of the city in which he was found. And what's striking, as we've seen over previous weeks and worked through the previous chapters of the book of Daniel, is that Daniel did this with great consistency through his life. Over the first six chapters of the book, as kings come and go, and over the decades of Daniel's life, his excellent character stands out, doesn't it? It shines forth, not just in the recognition of one king, but in the recognition of many. And that is a pattern for us. Because servants of God's kingdom, servants of the living God, excel in their callings. We do our utmost in our callings because we are serving the one true and living God. But the interesting thing is, when you do that, everything doesn't always go swimmingly, does it? And that's what we find as we continue through the chapter, because Daniel then comes to face sustained opposition from the other officials. And that reminds us that, that we serve as the Lord's people, as members of his kingdom under his lordship. We serve a different king. We have a different identity. And sometimes that means that opposition will come. And that comes to our second point. Citizens of God's kingdom will experience opposition in the world. We're prepared here for opposition as the Lord's people from the world because in verses 4 to 15, we read of a great scheme that is brought against Daniel. And notice just how how, uh, deliberate this opposition is. It is organized opposition because we read that, that the rulers come together to set a trap for Daniel. The servants of Darius come together to set this trap for Daniel. It's not just organized, it's also deceitful. It's deceitful because if you look down at verse 7, when the other officials come to the king, what do they say? Well, they say, we have all agreed the king should issue this edict. Is that true? Well, there's one person in this kingdom who has not been consulted. It's Daniel, isn't it? So they lie here to the king because Daniel has not been consulted because he wouldn't have consented to this law. But not only that, the opposition is organized, it's deceitful, it's also prejudiced. If you look down at verse 13, they describe Daniel as one of the exiles from Judah. They want to say, he is not one of us, he's an immigrant 
whose loyalty should be questioned. So there is this organized opposition. And the organized opposition takes a form of proposing a law to the king that seems very attractive to the king at first. The law is, is very simple. The deal is that no one should pray to any god or human being except Darius. Now, for a new king, that's a flattering thing to be put to them, isn't it? And also, it's attractive for a new king who might be seeking to establish their authority over their kingdom. And added to this, the officials say this new law be made according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which means, crucially, the law cannot be changed. So there is opposition to Daniel because they are very deliberate here. If you look there at verse 5, having, having looked at all of Daniel's life, they say we're not going to find any reason to put Daniel in difficulty if we look at his life and his conduct. We can't undermine him that way. The only way we can do it is by creating a deliberate conflict, a conflict between the laws of his God and a conflict between the laws of our land. And so they do it. They create this conflict. What is the source, though, of their opposition towards Daniel? Well, ultimately, we need to see that their opposition to Daniel is coming from a deeper opposition to the Lord. Because they set up this conflict between the law of God and the law of Darius. And in doing so, they're setting a trap for Daniel. But ultimately, they are challenging the authority of the Lord because they want to put Darius in this ultimate position. And it's important that we see those oppositions and conflicts in our lives when we are standing for the Lord as a part of a bigger conflict that is going on. In the Royal Armouries Museum in Leeds, there is an amazing large model of the Battle of Waterloo. It's one of our favorite things to go and see when we would have a Saturday afternoon at the museum, and you can see this huge battle that's going on uh, there on the, on the field there in uh, uh, Waterloo. And it's this battle that's raging between these two armies. But as you look at the detail, actually, this bigger battle is made up of lots of smaller conflicts. So around a farmhouse, the soldiers are doing battle here. On the hillside, they're doing battle over here. They're firing their cannons at them at distance from here and there. And so this bigger battle is made up of lots of smaller battles. And that's a picture of how we should see opposition in the world. Their actions here against Daniel are a part of a bigger battle going on between the Lord and their opposition and those uh, who oppose the Lord. And we need to see opposition like this in a similar light. When we face, as Christians, unfair opposition, there is a temptation, isn't there, to see it as something personal. It's about them and us. But actually what we need to do is see it as something bigger. It's a part, it's a reflection of the larger battle between Satan and God. Where the devil is trying to derail God's plans and defeat God's kingdom by attacking God's people part of a bigger battle. Now, we can be thankful that so often in our lives that opposition isn't constant, but we know it's real, don't we? And we should expect it because it comes as a part of this wider kingdom conflict. Now, it's striking here in Daniel chapter 6 that opposition doesn't just arise when we start to speak about the gospel. 
Opposition can arise when we show excellence in our character and life. Because darkness hates the light. And sometimes it is enough that you live according to the light, that you live pursuing godliness and living according to God's way. And some in the darkness will be opposed to you just because of that. I was talking to a friend just last night who was telling me that as a church, they had distributed Easter leaflets. And on the leaflets, they had included a testimony of a couple who had come to know the Lord. And then an Easter message inviting people to come to church. And the story of this couple has been the story of many uh, young couples, is that they were planning to get married due to the pandemic. And they couldn't get married. They had to wait for their wedding. And they just noted in describing how they had lived that they hadn't lived together before marriage and that the pandemic had delayed their marriage. And then they went on to speak of their Christian testimony and how they, and how they knew the Lord. But this church um, and this friend in ministry had received hate mail from some people who didn't like the description of the couple who were seeking to honor God by not living together as man and wife before marriage. Friends, there are times that when you just stand for what is right and live in a godly way, opposition comes. And we should be ready for that. We should expect that. And we can give thanks for that because God uses opposition for good in our lives. Because when we face challenges like Daniel does here, the true motivations of our hearts are exposed. There are times when we can serve with excellence in our callings in this world for the wrong reasons. Not because we're serving God, but because we're serving the idols of this world. Because we're seeking success and approval from others. And there are times when we can hide those sinful motivations behind perhaps an appearance of godliness. Where we say that we are serving the Lord, but actually deep down, we know we're not. Do you see here that the opposition that comes to Daniel helps to test whether he really is serving well because he's serving God? Because if that had been Daniel, if his motive was ultimately to serve the world in that sense and seeking the approval of the world, when he faced the challenge he does here, he would have given in. Because when those kingdoms were in conflict, he would have compromised and serve the idol of the kingdoms of this world. But Daniel doesn't, because his ultimate allegiance is to the Lord, his God. And there are times when oppositions and trials, God uses them to help us to see and expose some of the idols that are vying for control in our hearts. And when they're exposed, we can be helped to turn from them. God can use even opposition for good in our lives spiritually. Which brings us to the third characteristic of citizens of God's kingdom. We serve with excellence our callings because we serve the Lord. We experience opposition in the world because we serve and honor the Lord. And then thirdly, we live with one ultimate allegiance. Verses 10 to 15. Daniel lived with God as his king and wanted to serve God and him alone. And we see that in two very, very stark ways in this passage. 
We see it firstly in his obedience to God. Because once Darius passes the law, and once that conflict has been created between the law of God and the law of Darius, there is no debate in Daniel as to what he should do. Isn't it striking that as Daniel hears about it, there in verse 10, what does he do? Now, when Daniel learned that a decree has been published, he went, to his, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened to Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, and here's a key phrase, just as he had done before. It's striking, isn't it, that there appears to be no struggle within Daniel as to what he should do. He doesn't panic. He doesn't fret. He just keeps on doing what he always has done. And he prays to God three times a day. He has already rejected the idol of his own security. And so now he can continue to live in obedience to God, praying to God as he has always done. And Daniel's convictions align with the words of Peter and the other apostles in Acts 5, 29, where he lives by the principle that we must obey God rather than human beings. That's the principle of Daniel's life. Ultimately, obedience to God. And when the laws of the land conflict with the laws of his God, he will obey God because God alone is king. That is a principle that we need to have deeply engraved on our hearts as the Lord's people. And when I was preaching in South Africa last week, I asked the church there to pray for Christians in the United Kingdom as a whole. Because we need to be clear about that priority because we may face situations in the future where we need to live by that principle. Where there is a conflict, we will serve God and God alone particularly in what we'll say and teach about the clear moral standards of Scripture. We need to remember that the authority of any human ruler isn't absolute. It's authority given by God. And so our allegiance and our service to any human authority, as Daniel showed us, is always secondary to our ultimate and final allegiance to God. And that has been a key conviction for God's people through history. And it needs to remain our conviction as the Lord's people as we go forward. In Scotland, in 1592, Andrew Meville led a delegation to King James to ask for the king's help and for his protection because they had um, experiencing a plot to overthrow the Protestant faith. And they went to the king and they said, King, please help us. King James refused to help and then accused the Protestants of trying to overthrow him as king. The discussion continued, debate uh, went about, and then Meville told the king, I must tell you, King James, there are two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the head of this commonwealth, and there is King Jesus, the king of the church, whose subject King James VI is. God's kingdom always comes first. And we need to hold that principle clearly in our minds so that it's ready now 
So that if and when the challenge comes to the authority of our God, we know how to respond. He obeyed because God was his king. But Daniel's ultimate allegiance to God isn't just seen in his obedience, it's also seen in his spiritual life as well. Notice how it's seen in his pattern of prayer. Because when you and I pray, we are declaring our allegiance to God, aren't we? We are declaring who is the sovereign ruler of our lives. Because we are coming to our God and our King to bring our petitions to him. And Daniel's prayer life is a challenging example. Notice verse 10, he has discipline. We read that he prays three times a day and he does that regularly. In this, Daniel is is probably following the pattern of David in Psalm 55, verses 16 and 17, where David says, As for me, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Daniel's prayer has discipline. But notice also, Daniel's prayer has direction. In which direction does he pray? Well, he prays towards Jerusalem. Now, why is he doing that? Well, it, well, it's not because he's superstitious. What he is doing is he is remembering Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, where, where the Lord's people were called to pray towards the temple in Jerusalem to show that they were looking to God's covenant promises. So his direction shows that he is trusting in God's promises. But notice also, he has devotion. He has discipline, direction, and devotion because, well, he gets down on his knees, doesn't he? Now, the point here isn't so much about his physical position, but rather what his position shows about his heart. He knows that God is his king. And he knows that as he prays, he is drawing near to God's throne of grace. And so he prays on bended knee, to reflect that he is bowing in his heart before God in great devotion. His prayer has devotion. But then also notice that his prayer is neither public, in a showing off sort of sense, but nor is it hidden, in that he wants to keep it from others. His prayers aren't public because when he goes home, when he he goes home to pray, he goes to an upstairs room because he doesn't want to show off and parade his spirituality. But also notice that his prayers are not hidden. The windows are open. When the officials want to try and find him praying, they can do that. He's not hiding his actions because he is not afraid. So Daniel's example in his spiritual life in prayer is challenging. And remember that Daniel's commitment was steady throughout his life. As we come here to Daniel chapter 6, we find a man who is older in his senior years. And in the previous challenges that Daniel and his friends responded to, well, they were young men. But now, as they continue with God, Daniel faces his challenge as an older man, and he keeps on with that steady commitment to the Lord as his king. Actually, you might say that the battles he faced as a younger man prepared him for this because they set a a direction for his life from his youth. And as the challenges grew larger, 
he was able to respond to them because he has already set the pattern for his heart. It's lovely this evening to see so many children and young people out at the service. And can I just say this to you as you're with us this evening? These verses speak to you when you're young. Because right now, you are setting a trajectory for your life. You are making decisions right now and establishing a pattern for your heart as it goes forward. That's what Daniel did through his life. Professional athletes sometimes train again and again and again, doing the same thing in a repeated way to create what they call muscle memory. So that when it comes to doing it again, they just know how to do it because it's natural to them. And the challenge to you and to all of us from these verses is that if we choose compromise over sin when we're young, when the challenges might be smaller, it will be much harder to stand for what is right in the future when the challenges will be bigger. So can I say to you, set a godly trajectory for your life. Look at the example of Daniel here. From his youth, he had that pattern. He had that obedience to God. And if you establish that now, God will help you as you serve into the future. That's to the young people. But can I say a few words now to those who are more senior? Because Daniel in these verses is an older man. He's in his later years. And his previous battles didn't protect him from trouble. They prepared him for the trouble that was to come. And we must remember that our past victories don't protect us from future battles later in life. There is no spiritual retirement for the Christian until glory. And we need to keep going each day and every day, choosing to serve God as our king. So whether we're old or whether we're young, these verses challenge us to keep on going with the Lord. And isn't it just an amazing thing to see that as we come to the end of chapter 6, which in the big picture of the book of Daniel, which is the end of the historical narrative, we're gonna, it's going to move and shift as we get to chapter 7 and onwards. It's going to get really very interesting because we're going to get into apocalyptic, prophetic literature. So come back next week to find out more. But Daniel chapter 6 is the end of the historical narrative. and We're coming to the end of, of that section of the book. Isn't it remarkable that at the end of that section, in these last record historically of Daniel's life in that sense, what is he remembered for? You know, he could have talked of all the things he did as a great administrator in Babylon. But it's not that, is it? What is it? That he is a man who prays. That he is a believer who walks with God right through life and keeps on serving God as his king. Isn't that a great thing to remember for? When I was flying to South Africa, I sat next to a lady on the way out whose father had been an accomplished lawyer in Zimbabwe who had worked for good and for justice for many years in that country and achieved a huge amount. He was a Christian man, and the thing that most struck her about her father's life was he got up every morning at 5.30 to read his Bible and to pray. Did amazing things, but the last thing she left with me was his spiritual life. Challenging to us all. But what is it that gives the foundation 
to Daniel's spiritual life? What enables him to stand when the pressure comes? Well, that's the last thing we come to as we look at citizens of God's kingdom. And it's fourthly this, that we are anchored by one great confidence, verses 16 to 18. And the confidence, very simply, is that God alone is king. God alone is king. Deep down, those who belong to God's kingdom know that, they really believe that, and that core belief is the very central conviction by which they live their lives. It grounds everything else. And we see it starkly in this chapter in the contrast between Darius and the Lord God. And let's notice here the weakness of Darius that points to the greatness of God. The Darius is uh, very much a weak king here. If you have been with us through the last six chapters of Daniel, and you can particularly think back to Daniel chapter 3, you could think about lots of contrast between King Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius. Think of, in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to show favor to the three friends who wouldn't bow down to that statue. But in Daniel chapter 6, Darius does want to show favor to Daniel. He respects Daniel. He wants to protect Daniel. But whichever the king, their weakness is clear to see. And Darius's king, Darius's weaknesses are very clear here. He is manipulated by his servants, isn't he? He doesn't see what they're trying to do, and he ends up serving their goals and not his because they're trying to get rid of Daniel. When Darius realizes what he has done and the position it puts Daniel in, he, he strives all day to try and rescue Daniel from punishments. But of course, he cannot help him. And most tellingly, Darius is enslaved by his own laws. He cannot repeal or change the law that has condemned Daniel to the lion's den. And then, once Daniel is placed in that den in the evening with those wild beasts, what does a beast, what does a king do? Well, he goes back to his palace, he spends the night in fear without hope. He can't eat, he can't be entertained, because he is anxious. Nebuchadnezzar, well, he was known for his great anger, wasn't he? Darius, he's known for his great fear. And right through the book of Daniel, God is doing what Dale Ralph Davis calls preventative theology. Preventative theology, because God is teaching right through the book of Daniel the principle of Psalm 146, verse 3. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings, who cannot save. God is saying that kings will come and kings will go, and whether they are whether they're opposed to you as believers or whether they're friendly towards you as believers, do not place your ultimate trust in them because whoever they are, they are not your ultimate king. And we need to remember that too, that principle too, don't we? Because we can thank God for largely favorable rulers in recent history, but we must not place our confidence in them. We need to trust God alone. Because the Lord alone is king. And that's where the contrast with the weakness of Darius and the greatness of God comes out. Because Daniel wasn't saved that night in the darkness of the lion's den because the lions weren't hungry. We know that because the next day, horribly, we see their power and their hunger as they carry out Darius's evil punishment against the officials and their families. That's not why Daniel was protected. 
He was protected because that evening, that den wasn't the lion's den. That evening, that den wasn't Darius's den. Whose den was it? The Lord's. This was the Lord's den. And like the three friends in Daniel chapter 3, Daniel is sustained by God's presence there through an angel. And here again, God's rescue demonstrates his power over all things. It's, again, the parallel of chapter 3. Just like the three friends came out of the fiery furnace and they were not touched by the flames in any way, Daniel comes out of the den, not harmed in any way. And Darius' decree, there in verses 26 and 27, spoken in response to this miraculous deliverance, spells out this, um, this crucial reality of God's kingly rule. Look with me at verse 27 and verse 28. What does Darius say? Darius says that the God of Daniel is the living God. He is powerful and active. He endures forever. Kings come and kings go. And his kingdom will never end. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But God endures. God is the constant. He rules over every king. And he rules in every situation. And how do we know that? Verse 27, we see it in Daniel 6, in his rescuing of Daniel and his salvation of Daniel. That's the evidence in Daniel 6. But of course, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we look to an even greater deliverance, don't we? We look to an even greater rescue. And so much of Daniel's experience in this chapter is paralleled in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of all the ways Daniel is Jesus. Daniel, like Jesus, is unjustly targeted by his enemies. Pilate. The highest ruler in Jerusalem tries to rescue Jesus, but fails. Jesus experiences unjust punishment like Daniel. He goes through the lion's den of God's judgments, not for his own sins, but for ours. But in contrast to Daniel, unlike Daniel, he was harmed. He did suffer through that judgment because that was necessary for our salvation. And yet Christ was raised to life like Daniel, coming up from his own burial cave. If God's work of salvation for Daniel shows God's power and his everlasting reign, then surely Christ's work of salvation for us shows his power and everlasting reign even more greatly. That's where we need to think of, we think of this evening. Because through the cross, Christ has defeated all of his and our enemies dealing with sin and death and Satan. And that reality, Christ's rescue, is what gives us great hope and confidence when we face those daily situations where we have to choose and declare where our ultimate allegiance lies. It's not a debate, because our God has demonstrated his greatness in the cross. And if he has defeated all of his enemies, if he has defeated all of my enemies through his death and resurrection, then I want to serve him and him alone as my king.
pursuing excellence in my callings because he is my king. Not giving in under opposition because he is my king. Obeying God rather than man when those laws conflict because he is my king. And then coming before him with that prayerful consistent, that consistency of prayerfulness because he alone is my king. Brothers and sisters, let us serve and praise and live for the honor of our King Jesus. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he rules and he reigns over his people with perfect justice and with great power. Thank you that you in your goodness and grace have called us into his kingdom through faith in what he has done on the cross. Thank you that we have a new identity as your people. And thank you for the way in which that new identity shapes everything that we are here and now and gives us great, certain, and everlasting hope for the future. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in joyful service to our King whether we're young, whether in the middle of life, or in our senior years, we want to live for King Jesus because he has done everything for our salvation and we want to respond in joyful obedience because he is our Lord and our God. And so we pray, Lord God, we pray that you would help us each day by your Spirit to make those choices in those moments to put you first, to live and to serve you. And we pray that would be a powerful testimony to the world around us that may, may want to know more of the king whom we serve, who has saved us from our sins. Accept our praise, we ask, and see your word to our hearts for good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.